Well, thanks everybody for joining us today. So this is the first in the Nutrition Center's spring seminar series. Well, our next seminar will be soon, and we have um, a couple of visiting professors, uh, Liz Racine, Beth, Beth Racine, excuse me, from UNC Charlotte, is going to come down and talk about some of her work on food access at the end of the month. And then Andrew Hansen from Georgia Southern will be um, up to talk about his work uh, working with preschoolers to get them to talk about their nutrition in February. So I hope you'll keep joining us. I'm going to talk a little bit today about um, the nutrition policy issues that have been going on in the U.S. Um, in the past year. And I'm going to start out with a little bit of a story around trans fats. And then um, we'll talk about um, what's been going on with SNAP and school meals and the Food um, Safety Modernization Act. I hope you'll stop me and ask me questions um, and that this can be as interactive as possible. So what's all this stuff? Delicious. Delicious. <laughs> Leaves that kind of feeling on the top of your mouth kind of delicious. <laughs> what is that? What do all these foods have in common? Besides being delicious, many. <laughs> Processing, yeah. So if they're processed, what? It's Friday afternoon. I'm trying to wake you guys up. So. <laughs> Trans fats, yeah. What else? Yeah, exactly. So two key ingredients from the food industry, two key food innovations. So I'm going to just tell you a little bit of the story of trans fat because I think it, it sets the stage for what the key issues in nutrition in the United States in 2014 are. First of all, <laughs> we issued a ban on trans fats. Did you guys hear about that? The end of November. So what was that ban? Was it a fatwa? The nanny state is coming down to invade your gingerbread spice cake. This was about the FDA finally saying that um, companies can no longer say that if they have less than half a gram of trans fat in their foods that it's trans fat free. Now it really has to be trans fat free if it's trans fat free. So why would we care about that? Well, trans fats got into our diet um, early in this century, right? They're a new innovation. Crisco started offering the first hydrogenated oils, and it came out of a response to the, our changing economy. We had all this extra fat from candles, and we were electrifying our homes, and so we didn't need to make as many candles, so people were trying to figure out what we could do with all that extra fat. So we figured out a way to make it solid and edible from cottonseed and soybean oil, and we sent nutrition educators out into communities with these great cookbooks, how you can get trans fat to substitute for what were we eating at the time instead of trans fat? Lard, yeah, and beef tallow. Lard comes from, yeah, pigs, good. <laughs> beef tallow comes from cows and butter from from cows, right? Yeah, from milk. I've almost got you awake. <laughs> we're getting there. So these forms of solid fat were um, around, you know, 100 years ago were being substituted for with trans fats. And we had these marketing campaigns going on to get people to begin using them. So there was a, a slow early adoption of trans fats into the, into the diet. 
And then we started having dairy rationing dur during the war. So a lot more people started figuring out how to make their biscuits with trans fats and Crisco instead of with um, butter. And then in the early 50s, some really important seminal nutrition research happened. Um, so this was published in the American Journal of Public Health in 1959, and compared to eight normal subjects, the, there were you know, 12, 13 people in each of these other groups that were either overweight, hypertensive, high cholesterol, or hypertensive with high cholesterol. We found that they had a much higher risk of heart disease among this really limited sample of folks if they were high cholesterol and hypertensive. So we were worried. Number one, we have new data showing us cardiovascular disease, number one leading cause of death, and the risk factors are related to having hypertension and cholesterol, high cholesterol. So what's causing that problem? Well, this study came out, the, the um, study, 22 country study, showing that deaths from um, degenerative heart disease among men was a function of percent of calories from the diet, uh, fat calories from the diet. And who's at the top of that, that story right there? That's right. <laughs> so this physiologist is really, he's super interested, intensely interested in how saturated fats make cell walls. So he's He's looking at this from all different angles, and then he gets all this country data, and he publishes this study. And of course, he's been widely criticized, because if you put all the data points on, it's not nearly so clean. And then some people out in the alternative food community like to put some folks out here from the Inuit and from um, the Maasai, who have very high-fat diets, but very low risk of heart disease. So. The story is not nearly so clean as we were telling it in 1959, right? But the American Heart Association came out with recommendations, and the food industry jumped on it. There's an L factor, lipids, related to your car uh, cardiovascular disease, so everybody needs to switch to corn oil. You need to quickly get on the vegetable oil ban. Start frying your shrimp, canola oil. <laughs> And the American Heart Association was actually a little bit worried about this. In their second set of fat recommendations, they actually said, let's limit the amount of trans fats in your diet. Let's take it easy on the margarine. But the food industry influenced them to take that recommendation out of this second set of guidance. So for a long time, the American Heart Association, which was really leading putting out new nutrition recommendations, was avoiding saying trans fat was an issue. And then new data in um, the 80s and 90s started coming out of the Women's Health Study. Um, I'll summarize this quickly. That's looked at, well, so if we start changing our diet and we put carbohydrate in, if we eat a low-fat diet and we eat a lot more carbohydrate, what will happen? Carbohydrate being cookies, rice, that kind of stuff. Versus if we substitute other kinds of fats. So if the bar goes this way, you're going to increase your risk if you make that kind of substitution. If it goes that way, you're going to decrease your risk. So substituting carbohydrates for vegetable fats clearly, as part of this story, is going to increase your risk. So switching to a low-fat diet where you're getting rid of vegetable fats, not good, right? And substituting unhydrogenated fat, substituting 
um, your trans fats with unsaturated fats. So still eating fat in your diet, but switching for vegetable oils, that's good, according to these new data coming out. So these new data are supporting a campaign that came out primarily from CSPI, and I think is really instructive for us to think about. Um, they're doing an issue campaign. They're using a lot of different strategies to try to push for this policy change. So they start out for working for a label in 1994. And um, so now your food, your processed food, actually has a label on it. But like I said, there was a problem with that label. If it has less than half a gram per serving of trans fat in it, they could say it was trans fat free. Then they got the Institute of Medicine to really look at the new science and say, eat as little as possible. So unlike the American Heart Association's early recommendations, the Institute of Medicine actually finally comes out and says, you really need to avoid trans fat in your diet. Um, they strategically started suing com companies. So they got McDonald's to agree to stop putting trans fat in their French fry oil. French fry oil. <coughs> McDonald's kind of quietly went back to doing it anyway. So they sued them and they really shamed them publicly. Um, then they sued Kentucky Fried Chicken for not getting on the bandwagon. And they got New York and California. That seems to be a key strategy in the United States, right? You've got to get New York City and California or L.A. to pass a policy, right, <laughs> um, banning or limiting trans fat use if you want to make a federal policy change. And then they got Walmart. This seems to be another key strategy, a theme we're seeing in nutrition policy advocacy to require um, suppliers to phase it out by 2015. So this issue campaign coming primarily from CSPI's, or the Center for Science and the Public Interest, leadership is really pushing for federal policy change, but coming at it using the legal system, coming at it using new legislation, coming at it using state and local ordinances to, to really help create a group of people who are willing out um, to support this change. So I think that's really important for us to think about as, we're, as we talk about these other federal policies and whether all of those elements are in place. So trans fat, the trans fat debate, excuse me, is really about industry and the medical community and consumer interest being in competition. And that's true of almost all nutrition policy. Science was really leveraged um, and it was also really compromised. If you look at the 22 country study, why weren't all those countries there? How do we get to select which data we want to use to set policy? Advocacy groups really acted prematurely um, without getting all the science. So once we had a better set of science by the early 2000s, it was clear that trans fat was not the appropriate substitution for us to be making in our diet. And correcting the problem of what happened in the American Heart Association early in the 60s, it took decades of advocacy to undo it. So I think for me, this is really a cautionary tale of looking at nutrition science as new, using that science to set policy, and not really thinking through what the competing interests of all the people who are contributing to that policy might be. And in fact, when you think about nutrition policy, it is the classic um, political science example of Iron Triangle, right? Agricultural policy. So we've got Congress and interest groups and bureaucracy all kind of feeding each, or, each other with supports. And um, being an individual voter 
in this system, it makes it really hard to have any influence when, when there are all these systems of mutual support. If you vote for me or you get me elected, I'll make sure you have friendly oversight. So I'm now going to talk about the two key, key pieces of agricultural nutrition policy, the um, Farm Bill, which sets uh, a lot of our policy related to um, how we grow food in the United States and um, how we redistribute money to make sure that people have enough money to buy food. And then the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act, or as it's called these days, the Healthy Hunger Free Kid Act. So this is a graph of what will happen in the Farm Bill in the next 10 years um, if we continue spending the way we're spending under the current Farm Bill. So most of it's spent on what? This part right here. Can you guys see that word up there? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> the blue part is crop insurance. Was that what's our other fond word for that in the advocacy? Hmm? Yeah, subsidies to farmers, right? Commodities, what's that about? Yeah, that's when the federal government buys up food from farmers and then redistributes it. And conservation. Those are our programs to make sure that we're keeping clean air and have good soil. And then we've got trade, energy, research. So the Farm Bill is doing a lot of different things to support agriculture in the United States. But the primary thing it's doing is nutrition. nutrition. And what is that? The SNAP program. The primary outlay of the Farm Bill is the SNAP program. And SNAP is the money that we give to people who have less than 130% of their income from poverty. And so not surprisingly, um, there's a debate right now. We need a new farm bill. We haven't passed one in the past two years. Um, the House has come up with their version of one and passed it, and the Senate's come up with their version of one and passed it. The House's bill completely left out nutrition. It said we don't need a nutrition title in the farm bill. Let's just eliminate it completely. And the Senate bill actually came up with a nutrition title that was dramatically reduced. So when you look at um, the amount of money that would be cut out of the Farm Bill over the next 10 years, the difference between the Senate and the House bill is $35 billion. Um, and then some places uh, the House is actually willing to spend a little bit more money than the Senate, like on agricultural subsidies. So this is what's in um, being contested right now in terms of the Farm Bill. If you look at those SNAP cuts and you calculate out about what it would cost to provide a meal to a family under those SNAP cuts, um, that, that's represented by the top of this graph right here. SNAP got supplemented. It got some extra funding um, during the stimulus recovery period, and all of that just got cut at the end of November. So if we calculated that dollar amount out as meals, that would be represented here, plus the, the amount of SNAP that's going to be cut um, in this new farm bill, if we go with the Senate version, that's the entire charitable food system. So the argument is we're going to reduce SNAP spending because communities need to step up and take care of their families. But that would mean 
if we do what the Senate says we're going to do, that we need to double the size of the charitable food system in the United States, effective as soon as this new SNAP bill takes, or this new farm bill takes place. So what's the charitable food system? I'm going to call on you, Carrie. You guys are very quiet. <laughs> What would you do if you didn't have SNAP and you needed to get food? What is the charitable food system? Food banks, right, exactly. Food pantries, soup kitchens, all the places you could go to get a meal because people donated food or purchased food to feed you. So how feasible do you think it would be for us to double the size of the charitable food system? So this is meant to be an emergency food system, right? And this system represented over here is meant to be an income supplement, a transfer to low-income people because they're not making enough money through their current wage-earning activity or they can't find a job. So it's really two different philosophies, and if we intend to entirely rely on communities to provide an emergency-based food, then we have to double the size of that system, and that system is already far outgrown its original intention or capacity. So this is really concerning in terms of thinking about what kinds of investments we're going to make to support nutrition in the U.S. In terms of crop subsidies, the other side of that picture, um, you know, right now about $33 billion of our commodities um, money is spent on corn, soybeans, cotton, rice, and wheat. So that's this half of the recommended my plate, plate, right? So your proteins and your grains. While we're only spending about $4.3 billion, uh, billion on specialty crops. Well, where are American diets deficient? Um, right, on that side of the plate. So where do we need to be investing money in growing more crops, right? From a nutrition perspective, for sure, on that side of the plate. <coughs> and the, um, this is a little sensationalism for you. <laughs> the Environmental Working Group has done a really nice campaign for a long time looking at, so who's getting these subsidies? So they just published um, in the past year the um, 10 billionaires who are receiving farm subsidies through our crop insurance program. Do you guys recognize any of these folks? The one that gets me the most is the current director of the FDA. This is the CEO of Microsoft, of an entertainment group, of Chick-fil-A, of Amway. They all have farms. They all have farms. The CEO of Estee Lauder. So we have to really ask ourselves the question of what, it, what is it we're investing in, right, when, we, when we're providing crop subsidies to billionaires, even if it's only 10 or 15 of them, while people are struggling to buy enough meals to feed their family. So um, right before the Christmas break, they decided to extend the Farm Bill for a few months to put off the debate. Right now, there's a conference committee, a couple of people from the House of Representatives and a couple of people from the Senate who are debating. Um, and if you want to know who's on that conference committee, you can, you can just um, look up conference committee, a Google conference committee Farm Bill. There's no one from our state on the conference committee. And they're debating those two versions of the bill. And they can either come up with a compromise or they can put it off till after the election. So we could continue the current farm bill into the next election year. Um, 
or for up to two years from now. But at some point, we're, we are, as a society, going to have to make these decisions that are, that are being debated. Does a nutrition title belong in the Farm Bill? And if it does belong in the Farm Bill, then what are the trade-offs we're going to have to make to invest in nutrition? And they're not only in the nutrition title, right? The crop, in, the crop insurance title and the other titles also matter for our nutrition. So the other key piece of nutrition legislation in the United States, also administered by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, is the Healthy and Hunger-Free Kids Act. And I'm not going to talk about all of it. I'm just going to say that there are two things that um, have come up in the past year that you might be interested in. One, so one is the competitive food rules. Competitive food is food that's not sold as part of a free lunch program, right? And then research on child hunger. So the competitive foods regulations took a couple of years to develop, and they, again, grew out of an advocacy process that started in New York and L.A., um, a few key cities passing regulations, dealing with the debates, trying to understand what the implementation issues were. Then a lot of states got on the bandwagon and, and took a variety of strategies. The federal government pushed it back out to communities and said every school district is going to have a wellness committee that decides what their policy is. So this has been... Again, another two decades coming, but the federal government passed competitive foods regulations and they're being implemented in schools for the first time this year. So foods sold outside of the school meals program mean that kids can, if they have pocket money or their parents have sent in a check and uh, allowed them to swipe their card and buy whatever they want, have a lunch that looks like this or to pick up a few snacks um, as they're going through the line. So this guy's got a Subway sandwich, and he's going to pick out his potato chip to go alongside it. Those foods actually don't meet the criteria for a healthy lunch, um, according to what the school meals guidance would say. But they could, right? I mean, competitive foods can also be healthy. There's no reason they have to be junk food. So the new standards say that any snack that's offered to a kid is either going to be a fruit or a vegetable, or it's going to have nutritional value. And nutritional value got um, described as contributing at least 10% of either um, vitamin C, potassium, vitamin D, or fiber. And it has to be about a third or less fat, about a third or less sugar, and it can't have any more than 200 calories per portion. So a snack's going to be less than 200 calories. It's going to contribute something to your diet, and it's not going to be high fat or high sugar. So no gingerbread spice cake. Do you guys snack like this? No? Sometimes, maybe. All the beverages, according to the new competitive foods rule, um, have to comply to standards, too. So all schools have to sell plain water, plain low-fat milk, flavored milks, or milk alternatives. And... Um, a la carte, those are the things that are sold in the cafeteria, um, and they may be offered during this, as part of the school meal program, but they may just be sold separately. Um, so, but they have to be less than 350 calories. So if you're going to sell pizza separately or as part of the school meals program and you want to offer a kid an extra slice of pizza, the pizza can only have 350 calories or less per slice. These rules only apply to the school day, and each district gets to... Um, define uh, this loophole 
in it, which we also have in the state of South Carolina's competitive food regulations, which says that it only applies to foods um, that are not being used as part of a fundraiser. Well, competitive foods by definition are fundraisers, so really every state can decide how far they, they want to take this, and every school district can decide how far they want to take these implementation standards. Any questions about that before I switch gears completely? Yeah. Mm-mm. No. What do you think? Well, because I thought the dairy industry pushed really hard to have that. Yeah. And Yeah, and they, they're usually really influential in these, um, but you see they, they, um, their primary influence here was on beverage, that every school is now going to offer these three different kinds of milk all the time. Right. Yeah, and one of the sort of down in the trenches debate is this going to be by sugar by weight or sugar by calories, right? And they were they were on the by weight side, I think. Yeah. So the ma and let me just say the major concern on this bill is that um, it's up for this is the year we need to start doing advocacy on the next version of the child nutrition. Reauthorization Act or the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act because it'll come up again for debate in the following year. And we know that the person who's going to chair that committee, assuming that they don't lose their seat uh, in the House, completely opposes all of these rules and all of the rules that guide the um, school meals programs right now. So they could just be completely eliminated from the next version of the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act. So whether you believe that Regulating the school meals is really important, or and we haven't gone far enough, or you think that we need to be doing something else to think about how we're feeding kids. Um, this is the opportunity to begin talking to our legislators about what we could be doing for school nutrition and, and what um, our kids' snacks should look like. And in South Carolina, I'll say one more thing about that. In South Carolina, we're trying to pass... Um, we're still working on competitive food rules for this state. So um, there's a group of people who are trying to come up with what the rules in this state would look like. And given what's happening at the federal level, it might be even more important that we're thinking about at the state level developing consensus around um, what can and can't be offered in the schools. So I'm going to switch gears to the Food Safety Modernization Act, which was passed in 2010. And the rules just came out for comment in this past year. Now, we care about food safety, of course, because a lot of people are getting sick from um, some really specific types of um, bacteria, germs. You guys recognize the names of any of these? Did any of you get the norovirus that was going around? Yeah. Huh? You, yeah. Yeah. And then there was a really bad stomach bug that came through. How do we get exposed to this stuff? Kids. Kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, since I'm talking about food safety, <laughs> it's coming to you th through your food. 
And how's it getting on your food? Yeah, so we'll, we'll talk about that pathway in just a minute, right? So the 10 biggest outbreaks in the past year have been, um, and probably you guys heard most of these stories, um, from cantaloupe and listeria, right? The outside of the cantaloupe was getting listeria on it and you put the knife through it when you cut it open and that, that infects the, the meat that's inside. And, and so 29 people died from that one. Salmonella, you guys are, I know, all really familiar with the idea that you can be infected from eggs or turkey or chicken with salmonella. Again, listeria on your celery, salmonella on your peppers, salmonella in your peanut butter, and E. coli on your spinach. So some of this is coming from kitchen practices, right? It's being spread through kitchen practices, but as Jessica said, what's the original source of these foods being on our produce? Animals. So the Food Safety Modernization Act, FDA, published two different rules, um, a produce rule and a prevention and controls rule. So the produce rule says that farmers who grow produce have to use safe, clean water. You, like, you guys like that rule? That sounds great, right? I like that rule, safe, clean water for farmers. And the farmer who's growing the food is responsible for making sure their water is safe and clean. Now, how does the water come to your house? Huh? Yeah, through a pipe. Yeah. So how much control do you have over what gets piped in your house? Right, so this is worrisome for small farmers. How are they going to control what's upstream of their house? Um, you have to limit biological amendments. So compost. What do you think about this rule? Why would they say you have to limit compost in growing produce? Because most of what they use as compost is really just animal feces. Is that what? Yeah, because compost can have poop in it, right? Yeah. And if it's not composted properly, okay. it might make you sick. So what do we do if we don't put compost on food? Yeah, we, we still fertilize it, right? Because the plants need, need to eat. So we'll spray chemical fertilizers on it. So who might be really worried about this, this rule? Yeah. And all of you who don't want chemical fertilizers on your food. Um, the other part of the rule is that anybody who's out picking your cantaloupe in the field, they have to wash their hands before they touch your food. That seems like a really good idea, right? Have you seen a cantaloupe field, though? Out in California? I mean, we're talking about 20 acres of cantaloupes, and you might start at this end of the field and go to that end of the field. Are you going to wash your hand between every melon? You're not. So really the solution may not be in the farm workers having clean hands. Limiting contact with animals. So... We have gap certification rules in the state, for instance. That's one of the major limiting factors for schools being able to just buy food from or go outside to the garden and bring food into the cafeteria. It says that you're not allowed to have animals in your field. So you have to be watching out for birds flying over. You have to be limiting um, bird droppings on your food. You can't take your dog to the field. And 
most importantly for the scale of farming that we're talking about for supplying most of the country, you really don't want to have a factory farm next to your produce field. Um, you need to have clean buildings where you're processing stuff and you need to, there are a whole set of special rules about treating sprouts. So those are the main features of the produce rule. And you can imagine it created a firestorm of debate when it came out from small farmers, organic farmers, the Organic Consumers Association. Because these rules would basically eliminate organic farming as the way that, in the way that it's currently being done. The prevention and control rule also created a firestorm because it says that all processors, and that includes small farmers that are doing their own processing, are now going to have a hazard analysis plan, prevention controls. They're going to monitor where all of their food goes. They're going to um, create um, corrections and verification. And they bear the cost of all of this planning and evaluation of the food supply at the farm. And 99% of all the facilities affected that don't currently have these kinds of plans are small farmers. And it could be applied to you know, the farmer that you meet at, at the USC Farmer's Market who's just growing some stuff in their small couple of acre plot and selling directly to you. So a lot of comments went back into FDA around these rules, and FDA is currently sifting through those comments to decide what, if any, modifications they'll make to the rules. Now, I've got to put in my own two cents. Why would those animal farms um, be infected? Why are chickens getting salmonella all over them? Why are, the, why are eggs infected with salmonella? Why are we so worried about it in our meat? And why don't we want it next to our produce? Enough antibiotics. That's right, Bree. <laughs> no, we're crowding them, right? If if I made you live the way that you're sitting right now all of the time, eventually you guys would get each other's poop all over each other, right? And then um, you would get sick. And that's what's happening to these animals, too. And they die, and you can't clean them out quickly enough because they're, um, they're living in very, very crowded conditions. And then about the water rule, you know, if this... If this farm, if this feedlot is upstream of you and they're dumping this into your water supply and you're growing a water-intensive crop, it's really, really hard for you to control what contaminants are coming into your water as the farmer, right? And there are some really beautiful pictures. I don't know if you guys saw these. They came out of the UK, Amrit. She, she came and flew at, over the United States um, and took pictures of feedlots all over the United States. So each one of these little shapes, black shapes, here is a cow. And each one of these rectangles is a feedlot out west. And this is the water coming off of the feedlot. Now we, including me, we're actually in most states not even allowed to talk about this or show these images, but luckily she's not a U.S. citizen and she didn't land in the United States, so she was able to publish all these on her website. So right now, what's being debated, and a lot of states are passing what are called ag-gag laws. Um, and that means that if you point out animal abuse, if you point out practices that you consider unethical in those states, then you can be sued by the owner of that animal um, 
for libel. And pictures like this would certainly be a part of that. And that all grew out of, in the state of Tennessee, oddly enough, a man saying that he saw his neighbor abusing his horse by not feeding it. And so the neighbor got upset, and um, the agricultural industry, industry saw this as an opportunity to really say, hey, let's make sure that people stay out of our private business. We get to treat our animals the way we want to treat them. This is a privacy issue. So if you're, if you're concerned about your ability to talk about nutrition and food issues and how your food is being grown, you're going to want to really pay attention to ag Gallic laws in the state. A lot of other really important nutrition um, issues going on. You should talk to Carrie about doubling up your SNAP dollars in the state. And if you want to learn more about nutrition issues, you can, um, we're starting a new policy and practice brief series at the center. So you can visit our website and find policy and practice briefs there. We also want you to be writing policy and practice briefs. So if you have an idea for a key policy issue that you'd like to inform, let us know, and we'd be glad to help you get those published in our series. Um, we're also having a symposium at the end of March, and um, the 17th is the day you need to submit your abstracts. And Mary is anxious because there are not any up on the website yet, so you guys need to help. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Bree. <laughs> so everyone should follow Bree's example and get your abstracts submitted for this symposium. Um, our focus this year is kind of around communications, but, um, you know, obviously policy and advocacy communications, if that's an interest of yours, fits. And apparently that's all I have to say. I thought I had one more. <laughs> one more. So I'd love to hear from you about what you think the policy issues are, what you're concerned about, um, if you have questions about what I've just said, if you want to tell the FDA and you just realized it was too late. What are you guys thinking about in terms of nutrition policy? <laughs> there is. Yeah. <laughs> so where should we start, Jason? Well, I thought your trans fat example was instructive, um, and I thought it pointed out that, that um, getting getting the science right in terms of what the physiological relationships are at the beginning is important because we, I mean, your example shows nicely that it often takes decades for things to happen, and that also means if you sort of fall into a hole, it takes decades to get back out again, and, and that's sort of what happened with fat, is we got it wrong, and it took a long time to get it corrected. Right. Um, and there's a case where, I mean, Nancy Keys, by the way, died this fall. Mm. You know, he was well known because of his uh, starvation study, and he's a physiologist, not an epidemiologist. And now, now we would look at those data and say, well, we could have drawn the same relationship with GDP or many other things. Right, right. And it would have looked exactly the same. And, and so we know that that's not convinced. That's not, not not convincing. We know that now. But at the time, that's what carried it. And 
So I think having better, <coughs> making sure we have really good information about what, what's really going on uh, at a biological, physiological level or whatever the right level is, is really important. Yeah, I, I really appreciate your comment, Ed, and I think it, it's cautionary for all of us doing this kind of research and epidemiological research and research at the policy level that um, the repetition of studies really matters and the context is incredibly important. Uh, it seems to me that to not be kicked out of the tables, we need to find like a common ground. Mm -hmm. It's a trade-off of things that seem so illogical but won't change. For mm -hmm. example, subsidizing billionaires mm -hmm. or that percentage of investment on fruit and vegetables and it, yeah. nothing. Mm -hmm. And so I just think it's hard not to get frustrated and just say, oh, I'm going to do clinical nutrition. <laughs> but uh, we need to sort of learn how to play the game so we can still see Right. And be heard. And, and I just find that line very hard to find. Um, right. Where can I push so I am still there, but at the same time get some results and, and not take another 50 years? And, and I just don't have an answer, I just am coming to Yeah. No, and I, I appreciate your thoughts on that, and I've heard you say that before, Jessica. And that's part of the reason I put up the CSPI example, because I think seeing them do advocacy and organizing from multiple perspectives is really important. So if we just looked at any one piece of their campaign at the time, like when they went after McDonald's, right, we might be like, is that really important for them to be doing? Well, yes, it was a really key part of their strategy to shame corporations that were continuing to use this product that we knew was unhealthy for people. It wasn't the whole strategy, though, right? Because just doing that alone wouldn't have gotten them a seat at the table. But doing many, many other things and being willing to say, I'll stand up to you if you don't keep your promises also matters. And so the, the Environmental Working Group uses a very similar advocacy strategy on a national level. So they, a part of all of what they've been doing is this healthy food action um, pledge. So they've been trying to get all of our professional organizations to sign on to the seven principles of a sustainable food system. But at the same time, they're trying to shame all of these billionaires who are taking $10,000, in agricultural subsidies at the same time that we're, we're trying to cut the, the SNAP program. So they're, they're using it as an example, uh, an opportunity to stand up to and um, shed light on the disparity. Mm -hmm. Let's imagine that that You mean in the House? Yeah. So they've talked about having a separate nutrition title, but the Farm Bill has been around right since the 60s, and it re and it relies on a coalition of consumer and agricultural interests. So a lot of people both on the agricultural side and the nutrition side are really concerned that if we take these titles apart, um, then we're going to end up breaking the political coalition that builds support for either nutrition or agriculture. So I think that 
that's not been decided, but there's enough pressure on the House right now that they're probably going to have to write a nutrition bill that gets folded into the conference committee and comes out as one bill that goes back to both houses. No, no, it'll be it'll be something that has a nutrition title in it, um, and is some compromise between what the Senate and the House did. For me, one issue that is very important is the education. Because, mm -hmm. for example, if you uh, if you invest a lot of money in the fruit and vegetables issues, mm -hmm. but and you have the uh, the children at the school have the access or for these fruits and vegetables, but probably there is a, another education issue because that we need to work more because the children probably are going to choose another mm -hmm. kind of foods different than fruits and vegetables. Yeah. Fatty, fatty trans uh, foods or, or these uh, gingerbread cookies. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's more things to, to work on the schools. Well, uh, that this happened to me every day since mm -hmm. I arrived to the United States. There is a challenge for me to the, uh, for, to try to stop the obesity for my, my son, mm -hmm. who is 10 years old. And every day at the school, the teachers give candies. Mm -hmm. They have more access <laughs> to cookies. The teachers don't know what they are doing, but they change. And, and I, tr I try to don't, to don't, mm -hmm. don't say many things, because here we are in a, in a progress. Uh, we're still uh, in progress, mm -hmm. just arriving. So there is a challenge to do many things at, uh, at the more at the school level, yeah. different than, this, than investing in fruits, just investing in fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. You are in, as a unit in, in USA, you have a lot of access to fruits and vegetables, but it, there is not only one, one one of the solution. There are other solutions and other levels. Right. Well, our diets did used to be more balanced, and a lot of different <coughs> things have changed, but. When you look at the nutrition education investment that we make toward encouraging people to eat um, more fruits and vegetables, a plant-based diet, a local diet, an eco-friendly diet, however you want to frame it, right? The amount of money we invest in that versus the nutrition education that private industry is doing because they have incredibly cheap inputs to promote those other foods. Um, you know, we could make the argument that if it were a lot cheaper for them to be using fruits and vegetables, then they would be making the same kinds of investments to promote those fruits and vegetables to kids, and there wouldn't be this tremendous disparity, right? There's nutrition education going on around you all of the time. Everywhere you are, you're getting messages about what to eat, what's going to make you healthier, what's going to make you more beautiful, what's going to make you sexier, right? All of that information is coming at you all of the time. You're, you're being educated about nutrition. It's just most of it is not the message we want to be communicating. <laughs> I have a question about, I don't really know how to frame it, but so like the Food Safety Act. And it seems like that there is a kind of science that's informing uh, those particular solutions to the problems that they've identified. Mm -hmm. And there's probably a science that's identified the problems, and there's a science that's, that's saying that the way to impact our food system, you know, to have, like, a policy that impacts it in the greatest way, this is the solution. And, and so thinking about, you know, like, how science 
impacts policy. I just, I just wonder, you know, like I think about organic agriculture and the kinds of or, kind of agricultural practices that most organic farmers practice. There's a kind of science there that they use. I mean, there's definitely, but it's not, <coughs> it's obviously not informing that policy. I mean, mm -hmm. and so anyway, I just don't, I don't really know what the question is. It's just that relationship of, you know, mm -hmm. the kind where, you know, who's producing the science that informs that policy? And is it really science that even has much impact? I mean, it, I mean, it sounds like based on the political triangle, mm -hmm. you know, in my understanding that it's really the special interest groups and these other people that are, that are really making these decisions and they, they identify science that helps them, you know, support the arguments that they want to make based on their special interests. And so, you know, Anyway, I don't know. I don't know if we could be doing science a different way to really support. Yeah. Well, I think the policy was written, in, and I didn't make this clear, so I really appreciate your comment. The policy was written to impact most of the food that's in our food supply, which is being produced not on small farms, right, mm -hmm. but in, on very large farms and being processed in very large facilities. So this is meant to address the issue that if you get salmonella from Turkey at Thanksgiving, we have no idea where the turkey came from and whose hands it passed through and which processing facility it came from. So this Food Safety Modernization Act was written to help us trace that turkey all the way back to the farm so we can stop foodborne illness outbreaks. But it doesn't ask the questions that organic um, farmers ask, which is what made the animal sick in the first place? Um, I will say this is a, kind of a biased audience, obviously, because folks are here who are interested in nutrition mm -hmm. policy, but I know what I've seen and what you've seen in our classes with um, undergrads and kind of that millennial yeah. generation, it's this idea that uh, policy, number one, they can't impact policy, and number two, it doesn't have anything to do with them. So beyond yeah. just getting them to vote or call their congresspersons, do you um, try to push them towards congressional fellowships or internships? How do you get them to understand that policy is something that they influence and that they ultimately create instead of being so yep. uh, inert? <laughs> I think I should get David to answer that question. He's got <laughs> a lot more experience than I do. I don't teach my conference course anymore. <laughs> so what were you doing when you were teaching it? It is interesting. I mean, one reaction I have to what we're talking mm -hmm. about here is that, you know, you're also, I guess I was curious how much, I assume the public health community is also involved in some of the larger issues that create some of these problems, you know, so like campaign finance law, for example, right. is behind all of this. So the fact that the industry can mm -hmm. now give increasing amounts of money to, you know, all the relevant politicians is a big problem and that, you know, needs to be address there, right. you know, and things like King Bush Norway redistricting, where you can have, I, you know, I, the chairman, that chairman that you were talking about perhaps comes from a, mm -hmm. you know, a redistricted district where it's all people who are, you know, right-wing right. uh, libertarians or something. But, mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, some of those problems are sort of lurking in the background of uh, 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point, and I, my general answer would be not to the extent that, that we should be. But I know that I was at a public health conference, gosh, it's been 10 years ago now, and we were, the keynote speaker got up and delivered exactly that message. Let's all stop everything we're working on for the next two years and only work on campaign finance reform. Because if we work on that, a lot of these other things become issues that we can actually make a lot more progress in. But of course we didn't stop. <laughs> um, but going back, I teach policy in fiscal and social work, so mm -hmm. but we um, have started internships where people, students do their field experience at the state house. And we mm -hmm. also have like an advocacy day and one of the courses is getting changed, but it's a huge, totally just picking a bill at the state house and students advocate around that bill. Mm -hmm. That's great. I know the Honors College has a semester in Washington program. APHA offers a lot of congressional fellowships to undergrads, so grad mm -hmm. students don't even, they're not even eligible, but they're so underutilized and meet that APHA. Yeah. Um, American Psychological Association and ASA, but it's just, I think that the students who would want to be plugged into those resources, it's hard for them to do so, and that's, I don't want to be cynical, but it's hard to teach that. Yeah civic engagement oh, yeah. and civic responsibility, so how do you do that? But I think, you know, one, again, especially in social work, and I think also in public health, is that the professions in general don't do the greatest job of, um, of talking about how policy is one of, the, one of the tenets of both of those professions to influence policy. And if we did a better job as professions, I think in publicizing that to people, you know, even in high school, then people who were really interested in policy would start to be a part of these professions. But I hear all the time of students who aren't in these professions and then when they find out that the people in these professions do policy work, you know, they went a different track just because they didn't know that, but yeah. they would have if they had known that. It should be a curricular requirement. Yeah. I mean, we give people degrees in these great professions and then turn them loose without having engaged with either the community or policy. I think the hopeful side of this generation, though, is that um, because of social media, they can be incredibly informed and get engaged at pretty low cost at the beginning. So they can sign on to pledges and, and get involved in moveon.org kinds of things um, as their entryway activity, whereas before we used to have to write, type out a letter right, <laughs> or call somebody up on the phone. <laughs> and now it's it's so easy to to begin that process and so that... Um, you sort of get over the intimidation factor early and, um, and you learn more, a lot. You get connected to a group of people who are interested in those e issues pretty easily by liking a Facebook page or following a Twitter account. And, uh, you know, of course, we can look at Barack Obama's campaign of, as an incredible example of that, working to, to elect a president, right? Is it the rain? Or they coming back to school? Or <laughs> I have kind of a specific question. Uh -huh. but, um, so going back to the healthy hunger food kids act, uh -huh. are they restricting fundraisers at the school level at all? Uh, no. It, every school district gets to decide or every state gets to decide what's defined as a fundraiser. They could be every day, basically. Uh -huh. And when you talk to the people at the federal level who wrote the laws, they, mm -hmm. they say, you know, we're not looking to limit brownie sales. That's what they think fundraisers are. So it's really hard for them to realize that, no, schools buy paper with the money that they 
make from their soda machine. It's all fundraising. Yeah. And that's, I mean, what we saw on the uh, right. farm scale evaluation is that the competitor, the fundraisers were really prevalent right. every day right. sometimes in these schools. So that's why I don't understand, like, if we're working so hard on these competitive food rules and mm -hmm. then we're going to allow schools to have fundraisers pretty much any time and limited then. But this is the issue with policy is that when people put in provisions like that, or when you pass, that's why I think you have to be really careful not to compromise too much, because I get what you're saying, is that if you want to be at the table, you know, you have to be willing to play the game. But I think, I mean, going back to the point of trans fats and how many years it took us to get out of that, it's, it is extraordinarily hard to repeal policy because legislators, once you pass something about a certain issue, then a lot of times they take the perspective of, okay, we've already dealt with that, and that's why it takes years to ever get them to come back to look at those issues again. Yeah. So, I mean, in our state, that was the loophole that got written in early, and we worked really, really hard to, take, to get it out, and we did get it out, but then the policy never got passed, right? It keeps getting introduced and then languishing in committee every year. Oh. <laughs> 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 it's I okay. Say but I don't know. No, I can go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was going to say, you know, I used to work for an advocacy organization similar to CSPI, mm -hmm. so we could get away with kind of crazy stuff with like focusing on McDonald's and that kind of uh -huh. thing. But in academia, obviously, that's not the way we can go about things. Yeah. So I'm wondering what you think our role can really be, and mm -hmm. particularly when, you know, I think about like writing a policy brief would be really cool, but yeah. in terms of getting tenure, uh -huh. putting my time into writing a policy brief probably isn't going to be looked at as favorably as getting something published. Mm -hmm. So like I'm wondering how you think yeah. we should be balancing this and like what's our best way to put, you know, yeah. our effort towards this. Um, really great question. I won't say I've got it all figured out myself free, but <laughs> so the um, I think one um, is one we're state government employees, right? So we're automatically limited in what we can say about certain policy issues, but that does not mean that we cannot inform policy. So um, I think sometimes we all become a little bit too cautious because we're worried that we're overstepping our bounds as state um, state government employees. Informing policy is actually what most of us do because in public health we're always thinking about what we can do to improve the nation's health and health and that's a policy issue. So the work that we're all doing is policy relevant, right? Especially in a in a time when we're passing new policies all the time that say that their its intent is to reduce chronic disease or reduce obesity. Um, or improve healthy eating because it's it supports a healthy food supply, those kinds of things. So I think all of our work is policy relevant, and, and we just, in the same way that we write grants that say, you know, it's, we're helping to solve a long-term problem. We're not solving chronic or cardiovascular disease today, but we're helping people maintain a lean body weight so they don't develop it, right? So what, what are our policy outcomes in that same way? One of the things I'm helping to develop among us as a center is the ability to think about, well, what, what's the policy lever that's relevant? in this particular case. 
Um, and then the trade-off of your time. That's why we have Carrie <laughs> and a willing staff of people who are help, willing to help you think through what the policy relevance of your research might be and to help draft those briefs so that um, you're participating. We definitely we can't write them without you for sure, but we can certainly inform policies um, that might be relevant to your work. <coughs> so we need to be, as you guys all said in the retreat, spending a lot more time together so we know what everybody's working on and we can be thinking of together what the <coughs> policy relevance of that work might be. But then you can always represent yourself as an individual citizen as long as you're not representing the right. university or the center. Right. Um, I don't know how that works as far as tenure goes, but I know when, <laughs> I've, when I've done work on the Hill before, as long as you're going as, a, as an individual citizen, as a constituent, um, yeah. you're not as censored. Well, smart service is a really important part. And I know that this is probably not relevant to all of you, so I apologize, but you know, we, we get a really clear message our first five years to focus on um, papers and grants, right? And I know you're not doing this, but you don't want to only focus on counting up the numbers of papers and grants you're getting without thinking about what the next five years are going to look like because in your next five years the question being asked is are you a national leader? So you need to be setting yourself up to be the person that's being called to go to the National Academy of Science panel on, on the issues that you care about. You need to be the person that the congressperson is saying, hey in my state I've got somebody working on that. And the way that you do that is by communicating with people about the work that you do. So you've got to spend a little bit of your time doing that, not a whole bunch your first five years, but you've got to spend some of your time, even if you're only thinking about your career, you want to be setting yourself up to have a platform to talk about your issues in the, in the next part of your career. 